Amen. Hey, everybody. Hey, let's go to uh, Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be talking about money and sex and power and suffering. And so, uh, but that's what the passage talks about tonight is really how are we as Christ followers to live in light of those four powerful things. And they are really powerful motivators in our society. They're four powerful things. I, I listened to a a podcast a couple several years ago and it was about it was this guy named Joe Kenda and he he had been a detective uh, in Colorado Springs for 19 years and he worked on uh, homicide cases he had worked on 387 homicide cases in his 19 years which is just a crazy amount and he had solved 356 of them which is like 92 percent so so all day every day he's just kind of immersed in murder and thinking through the the motives of what would drive a person to commit murder. And so this podcast was fascinating because he wasn't going in great detail about the actual crimes. He was really going into detail about the mindsets. And he narrowed things down. It's really fascinating. He narrowed things down to all the cases he worked. He could boil it down to three different reasons for murder. And then every story he'd tell, he'd be like, and the motive for that one was money. And the motive for that one was revenge. And the motive for that one was sex. And so he, t- he says this. He says, when people get involved in violence, they have a reason. Now, it might be a completely insane reason, but it's a reason. And they fall into three general headline categories. Money first, sex next, and revenge last. There are many, many subheadings under each of those headlines. Money for non-payment, money for believed debt, and on and on and on. It goes on and on. Sex, the triangle, the sexual assault candidate who likes to kill his victims, huge list there. Revenge, over what? Over lost love, over lost money, over lost property or something. And that revenge one is pretty, is pretty broad because it really could be the loss of one of the other two things. It could be loss of money or, you know, it could be the loss of respect or the loss of power or the introduction of suffering to someone's life. Money, sex, power, and suffering. When you open the news tomorrow morning, you're going to read about those four things and how people are striving for three of them and trying to avoid the fourth one. Those are some huge motivations that, that are really driving behind business decisions and relationship decisions. They're motives for job changes and town changes and marriages and fraud and even murder. So I think tonight... I want to look at these ethics, and we're going to go through a very different sort of passage, but uh, it's a really intensely practical passage. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to dive into it, Uh, but it's very different from Hebrews that we've studied so far. Uh, Chapter 13, starting in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you're also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. Because he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It's a really practical passage. So if, if you're the kind of guy, like you get to the end of most sermons and you're like, 
so what? Like, what am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do with Melchizedek? I have no clue. What, I mean, how am I supposed to act? Like, tonight's your night. If you love application, love a list of things to do. But as groundwork, I want to dive into two items here. All right, two items before we get into the passage that I think are necessary to set the stage for these commands. And the first one is, tonight's going to be easier to understand but harder to obey. That is the trade-off. Some passages are harder to understand. You will wade through like Melchizedek, and that's way harder to understand. But there's not an immediate like to-do coming out of the Melchizedek story. You know what I mean? Tonight, you get a lot easier thing to understand, but the difficulty is not in the understanding. The difficulty is in the doing, is in the actual obeying. Now, most passages don't have like a to-do list at the end. Most, most scripture that you'll read on your own or we'll read as a church, it doesn't have like a step one, step two, here's what you're supposed to do tonight, here's what you're supposed to do tomorrow morning. It doesn't have like a step one, step two, step three. And I think for some of us that can be frustrating because, you know, we, we love to have a list of things to do. And I, to me, it's, uh, I think about it kind of the same way as, you know, some people get frustrated at the start of getting in better shape physically, you know, because they don't see any measurable scale changes. They're, they're doing the work with their food, they're doing the work with their exercise, but they're not seeing any measurable scale changes. But oftentimes, there's a lot of changing going on, but it's more body composition type of change. You know what I'm saying? There's not an immediate measurable change. What I think is most passages that we read, they're really in the business of kind of soul recomposition. What I mean by this is like, as we look at the word, our deep wants and our thoughts are changing. And so a lot of passages, there's not a lot of application, but that doesn't mean there's not a lot of change. It might be that our soul is being recomposed in, in, like, in our desires and in our thoughts. So tonight, it's not going to be one of those. Tonight's going to be very simple to apply, or I'm sorry, simple to understand, but difficult to obey. So here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach this passage, even though for real, I, I debated for a little bit, what if we just read this passage, read a sentence, and just meditated on it for five minutes? Read a sentence and just, but that's, we can all do that at home. So I'm going to preach this passage, but I want us to all, me included, I want us to if you're a note taker, I want you to write this little sentence down and have this as kind of the lens through which you see this passage, right? Agreeing isn't the same as obeying. Agreeing isn't the same as obeying. I need to see that because we're going to read a lot of stuff we're all going to agree with and be like, yep, yep, let brotherly love continue. Yes, we can agree with it but that's not the same as obeying. All right, that's the first big groundwork item. I'm taking longer on this because the passage is shorter. Um, second big groundwork item is, most of you guys have been here through the whole Hebrew study, but it is important that this application flows out of all the theology and doctrine that's happened for 11 chapters. It's not just arbitrary, hey, you need to do this and don't do this and do this and don't do this and do this and don't do this. It's flowing out. It has groundwork in all the doctrine that's, that's laid before it. And we see this in the scripture all the time where uh, really is doctrine before duty. And it's important or else we'd be reading a passage like this and be like, love the brothers. Why? Be content. Why? Be pure. Why? There, if we haven't laid the, the groundwork of theology and doctrine, we can't just pull out, you should act like this and act like this and act like this, even though that is what we've been trained to do by our society. You know, a lot of times, you know, if, 
We have so many different conflicts in our society now because there's no absolutes governing our morality. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Everybody does what's right to them. And we may all be screaming, this is moral, while we pull in different directions. You know what I'm saying? That's why when you turn on the news, you know, one channel is saying that the moral thing is to protect unborn humans. And then you change the channel, and the next channel is saying the, the moral thing is to protect the choice of the parents. Now, both of these are operating under a sense of morality, but only one has a foundation that's stronger than opinion. MacArthur says this, there's no uniform morality without a standard, and there's no standard without God. Now, it's important to note that God doesn't just set the standard. He is the standard. God defines these things because they flow out of his nature. And I think so often the world wants an attribute of God without the authority of God. We want the love, but we don't want God to define it for us. We, we want the morality, but we don't like God's definition of, of it. So not only will we have zero common ground to define what's right without God, we also got to realize not only will we not have, a, have like what's right and what's wrong without God, we don't have the ability to do what's right or what's wrong without God, and we don't even have the desire to do what's right without God. And so when he says, therefore, to begin chapter 12, he's already laid 11 chapters of foundation, 11 chapters of Christ is the source and the standard of our morals, and now he's going to give us the application. Like, you know, Brody preached on that beginning of chapter 12, that baton has been handed to us. All these great witnesses, all these people who've run the leg ahead of us, that baton's being put in our hand. We're fixing our eyes on Jesus, and he says in chapter 12, run the race. Chapter 13, he's going to say, here's how. And at the end of chapter 12, he said, offer acceptable worship. And here he's saying, here's what. Chapter 13, verse 1, John MacArthur points out he's going to show us the ethics, the example, and the energy. So here, let's jump into the first ethic. Let brotherly love continue. Simple. Man, that's something we got to go back and think about and meditate on. Let brotherly love continue. Simple to understand, difficult to live out. Now, when you're a new Christian, this is a lot easier. It's a lot easier to love somebody when you're a new Christian because you've got this, like, brand new, immediate new desire to love other people. But the longer you hang out with other believers, the more you realize they're still people. And people are annoying sometimes. And people are sinful sometimes. And people just do things differently than you do. And it's easy to start getting annoyed with other people. Here, here we're commanded to show love to all brothers. And he's calling it brotherly love because we're linked into the same family. For some people, that love's going to come easy. For some people, it's going to take effort. But brotherly love is crucial. There's a crucial element of being in Christ. 1 John 3. By this, it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. That's wild. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who doesn't love his brother. That chapter goes on and says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever doesn't love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life living in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anybody has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Understanding is not the same thing as obeying. 
Man, how often do we see churches torn apart by dissension and division? It happens all the time. All the time we hear it over and over and over. And you can be sure that those people aren't all letting brotherly love continue. Somewhere down the line, we lean more into our preferences or lean more into our possessions or lean more into our annoyances than brotherly love. And he said the way to combat this is by stirring up the brotherly love that's inside of us. That's what I think is so cool about this passage. The way he words it, he says, let brotherly love continue. He doesn't say, create brotherly love. You can't. Saying, let it continue because Christ has already put it in there. He's already created it. It's been given to us by Christ. We're just supposed to continue in it. We see uh, uh, the same thing that Paul says in Ephesians 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He's saying, you're not inventing the unity. You're just endeavoring to keep it. You already, you already have it. You just need to stir it up. You've been equipped with everything you need for life and godliness. Exercise it. Love, not in word, but in deed. Not in talk, but in truth. Not just in emotion, but in action. The recipients of this letter have already shown love. And here he's saying, continue loving. Lay down your preferences. Lay down your possessions. Lay down your annoyances. And act out what Christ has already put inside of you. Verse 2. They're really practical. They're easy to understand they're hard to obey do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares that verse is strange I'll be real like I okay at first it's you know the second ethic here is he's saying show hospitality to strangers and even the wording is really the same word as he just used show love to strangers now we know because they probably aren't in the family of God these strangers that you know that love looks a little different and here it plays out as more more like hospitality and the scripture speaks about hospitality to strangers a ton show hospitality to widows Show hospitality to the poor. Show hospitality to the orphans. And here it goes further, and it says, For thereby some people have entertained angels unaware. That has always been a weird verse to me. Who? Who has entertained angels unaware? Who has shown hospitality to a stranger, and it turns out to be an angel? Okay, so at first I thought it's probably talking about somebody in the Bible. And a lot of commentators will say, oh, it's Abraham. Abraham in Genesis 18, remember he's got those three men coming by, and he's like, hey, y'all share a meal with me. And, uh, oh, let, let me get to it here. Yeah, he prepped a meal who visited him, and it turned out to be the Lord and two angels. But in that passage, if you really read it, it doesn't seem like Abraham is unaware, like that they're divine. He seems to kind of know it the whole time. Well, there's two other passages like that in the book of Judges. Uh, there's one place where Gideon talks to an angel of the Lord. He's in there working in the wine press, and an angel appears. But Gideon realizes pretty quick that it's the Lord, and he doesn't, like, feed him a meal. He doesn't show him hospitality. The third place is Samson's dad. And Samson's dad preps a meal for the angel of the Lord, but he's already had a conversation with somebody that said an angel is coming to you. So he, he does realize it already. There's really no place in the Bible where I can find, and, and please let me know if you know of one, because great. Um, but there's no place that I can find where someone served a meal and the person left, and they didn't know, but it was an angel. So... That leads me to believe that some people 
have actually extended hospitality to strangers and never knew, but they were showing hospitality to an angel. It seems like it's happened to somebody, and I can't find it in the Bible, so it's happened to somebody. Now, is this verse trying to be motivation like, hey, you need to show hospitality because you never know. You might win the lottery, and you might be giving five bucks to an angel. You might have handed a cheeseburger to an angel. I, I don't know that that's really the motivation. However, it would be pretty rough to get to heaven and see a kind of vaguely familiar angel and be like, oh, shoot, man, you were outside of Walmart. it! I knew it. I, I knew it. Now, here's where, like, a lot of times, like, we start to talk about this hospitality conversation we start talking about handing money to strangers and then there's a warning that's given at this point in the conversation we're like now you got to be careful because there's a lot of con men out there and you don't know what you're dealing with out there and you know you may be given money that's going to end up in a bottle rather than a meal and so use wisdom because it's crazy times this is part of the problem I think when we hear show hospitality to strangers we automatically think handouts when true hospitality is so much more than a three-minute exchange. You know what I mean? It is true Christ-like hospitality is messy. It's the messy business of loving through addiction and through child protective services and through revoked licenses and broken trust. It's the hospitality that makes a stranger not a stranger anymore. It's opening our time. It's opening our opportunities. It's opening our homes. So I think if we're going to err, and I, I know my skeptic brain needs to hear this, I think we're supposed to err on the side of generosity, even if it means getting taken advantage of at times. Really, because love by nature gets taken advantage of sometimes. Love gets stepped on, but that doesn't mean we can eliminate it. Remember the foundation, too. It's not you loving, it's God showing his love. He just wants to use you to do it. So I think we're supposed to read this verse about entertaining angels, and, and I think we're just supposed to zoom out a little bit and see how much God prizes hospitality in his people. It's not like an add-on. It's not like a spiritual gift that some people have. It's not like optional. It's one way that God wants us to live out his love in the world. And y'all know, and I know you could read a billion verses in the Bible that talks about hospitality and how it's a high priority, but the real questions we gotta ask is, am I doing this? Am I obeying it? Am I showing hospitality and love and care to strangers when they're annoying? Am I showing hospitality to people that won't ever repay me? We can't neglect to do that. We can't let this command sit unobeyed. This is a practical way to run the, ra run the race, and in reality, it is one of the best ways to make Christ known. Think about this. How else will the world out there know about Jesus if we don't show that love because they're not reading the Bible. Think about it. How else are they supposed to know about Jesus if we don't show them love? They're not reading the Bible. We're reading the Bible. They're reading us. You think about it. Show hospitality. Show Christ. Imitate Christ. Verse 3. Another practical way. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. What's he talking about? Who's he talking about? Just remember prisoners. Just think about Cherokee County Prison over here. Just think about the state prisons. I think he's going deeper than just think about them from time to time. Just remember there's some folks in prison. Because he's saying, 
This is going beyond just call them to mind. It's going all the way to sympathy. Remember those who are in prison like you're in there with them. Who? Is he talking about believers? At first I didn't think so when I read it, and then I thought so because he says since you're also in the body. But I think that word in the body can be broad enough to talk about basically two things. Sympathize with Christians that are suffering because you're in Christ's body. They're one of you. But I think it can also just mean empathize with those that are mistreated and imprisoned since you are also in a physical body. With both uses of body and mind, I think we, we get what he's talking about. Put yourself in their situation. Imagine your body being mistreated. Imagine your hands in shackles. Imagine your back on the prison bed. This helps us to remember those in prison, not as a general nod, but as one who is with them, and most likely here in the same family. Not just prisoners, though, but the mistreated. He's already talked in, in Hebrews about Moses choosing to be mistreated with the people of God rather than, than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. And he pointed to this as proof of his faith. Galatians 6 says this, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here's the difficult part, because remember, agreeing isn't the same as obeying. It's not just recognizing somebody's burdens, it's getting under there with them. Let's don't forget the biggest example of this, which is Jesus. Because we were in prison and we were mistreated and he remembered us. He became also in the body with us and he bore our burdens. This is our example. So the question I've personally, me, Spencer, I have to ask is, is my life characterized as one who gets involved? Who stops my me first train and gets under somebody else's burden? Is that indicative of my life? Somebody that gets into the messiness? Because if love is the fulfillment of the law, then Galatians is at least implying that if we aren't bearing one another's burdens, we aren't fully loving. Verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. This verse seem out of the blue? It just seems like he's popcorn and topics, but he's really not. Because the whole passage has been living out love towards one another. And here he's saying that sexual immorality and adultery are enemies of love. Let marriage be held in honor by all. Y'all, that is not the way at all that the world views marriage. Now, we could preach probably 10 sermons out of this passage alone. But really, it's enough to just think about how God honors marriage. That he created it and he made it a picture of Christ and the church. This is the highest honor. That this reflects me. The way that you love in your household reflects the way I love the church. That is wild. And then he's not just talking about honor, but he sharpens things down to the point of the marriage bed. Not just the legal aspects of marriage, not just the relationship aspects of marriage. He's being really specific. One way that we can defile that honorable union is with sexual immorality and with adultery. And here he's saying this is not a light thing. And here he couples it with a, a statement on judgment. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, Hebrews is filled with weird warnings that seem to be pointed towards unbelievers, but also seem to be broad enough to warn believers. And I think this is one of those, where obviously there's a judgment on continued unrepentant sin of all slices, whether it's you know, sexual or otherwise for unbelievers. But here I think he's saying, be warned. I think that's broad enough to encompass us as well. What does that judgment look like for believers? I don't know, but I don't want it. 
He just got done talking about disciplining his sons. Purity in marriage is one way to run the race. Verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Pause and think about that. And here's the reason. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. We've been talking about love and we've had it in the context of people and now he's turned it to the context of money. Now, love of money is not a rich person problem. It's a person problem. You can love money and have a ton. You can love money and have a little. Now, pause. On this topic specifically, we've done a whole sermon. 1 Timothy 6. If you go back and look up the Red Oak sermons, 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10, it goes in great detail about what does love of money look like? Why do we have a love of money? How can I fight against the love of money? I'd encourage you all to go there. Don't have time for all that. Let me just say a few notes. Why do we love money? Think about what does money provide. What does it promise at least? It promises security. It promises stability. It promises a future. It promises hope. It promises happiness. And those things can't be found in money. They can only be found in God. It promises things it can't provide. Now it flirts with us. But you can't look to money as security and look to God as security. You can't look to money for happiness and to God for happiness. You can't look to money for the future and to God for the future. They are exclusive and only one of them can deliver on the promises. Jesus said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Now this is such an important topic. Did you know that Jesus talks about money more than he talks about heaven? Jesus talks about money more than he talks about hell. Jesus talks about money more than he talks about heaven and hell combined. It's important. Jesus talks about money more than he talks about faith, more than he talks about prayer. That's how important it is, and that's how strong the seduction of money is. It promises what only God can provide, and many people are led away by that perversion. Look at what he said the antidote is to loving money. The antidote for loving money is recognizing we have God. It's crazy. Be content with what you have because, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's crazy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, as having nothing but possessing everything. Our contentment is linked to our confidence in God's sovereignty and his presence. Our contentment is linked to our confidence in God's presence and his sovereignty. Here's the thing. He doesn't say, be content with what you have. It's enough. Because sometimes it's not. He doesn't say, be content with what you have, it's enough. He says, be content with what you have, God is enough. He won't leave us so we can confidently say, what can man do to us? What can poverty do to us? We have God. Now, that doesn't bring a lot of comfort when you're stressing over the bills, for sure. For sure. It's going to be a new way of thinking that's got to override our current panic. It's got to be something new that you run to instead of the checkbook run the race by lifting our eyes from money and fixing them on Jesus. Money will leave, he never will. That's the sort of confidence we have in Christ. There's a quote I want to read. It's from a, an interaction between Chrysostom and uh, the emperor Arcadius. And so Chrysostom, he's an early church author, definitely not a perfect guy by any stretch, but this interaction was, was awesome. And uh, so he's threatened with banishment. He's a, he's a believer, and he says to the emperor, 
thou canst not banish me for this, for, for this. He says, you can't banish me. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take it out of the King James. You can't banish me for this world is my father's house, but I will kill you, said the emperor. No, you can't, said the noble champion of the faith, for my life is hidden with Christ in God. Well, then I'll take away your treasures. No, you can't, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart's there. Well, I'll drive you away from man and you'll have no friends left. No, you can't, because I have a friend in heaven from whom you can't separate me. I defy you. There is nothing that you can do to hurt me. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider their outcome, the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. To this body of believers, this threefold exhortation is given where he says, remember your leaders, consider their lifestyle, imitate them. Who's he talking about? I think he's looking way back because he says uh, the outcome of their way of life like their life is finished. I think he's looking all the way back to this list of saints. I think he's looking to the ones who brought the word literally to them. I think he's looking at their church leaders today. Is like you have all these examples in the past and currently as well. And I think, man, that's such, uh, such an important point for us that we're not just looking here for examples. But, man, I know I have been so encouraged and I, I truly I don't know where I'd be without the example of so many of you We're watching y'all's marriages watching y'all's walk with Christ and I'm so encouraged by considering your lifestyle and imitating it remember consider imitate and here's how he wraps it up in verse 8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever Hebrews 1 has already said this. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Hebrews 1 says this as well. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They'll perish, you remain. They'll all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed. But you're the same. Your years will have no end. Here's what Hebrews says about Jesus. You continue forever. You're a priest forever. You're perfect forever. Your salvation is forever. Your redemption is forever. Your inheritance is forever. On and on and on. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's never going to leave you or forsake you because he never has. That's in his nature. By his nature, he does not forsake and he does not leave. So this brings so much confidence, I would think, to the original readers and to us. Because really, he just said, keep your eye on your leaders but he knows they're going to die. They're going to go. Jesus will not. If we get this picture of Jesus right, that he is who he says he is, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then the huge issues of money, sex, power, and suffering fall into place. It's not some subjective morality. It's not just a list of to-dos, but Christ colors everything. Christ informs everything. Christ is the one who loves through us. Christ's contentment satisfies us. Christ's love purifies us. See, Jesus does just, doesn't just define morality by who he is and by the word, but he also empowers us to live it and gives us the desire to live it out. We're just supposed to walk in the victory he's already won. I mean, you think about even this word. I, I thought about this, you know, just as I was reading it today, where it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The original recipients of that, they're reading that by candlelight, and they're so encouraged. 
and their sons and their sons and their daughters and their daughters. And it comes down to us and we're reading it on our iPhones and we're strengthened and encouraged and your great, great grandchildren are gonna read those words and be strengthened and encouraged that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is all the morality and all the hope of all generations. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Jesus, thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you for passages like this that are really easy to understand, Lord, and I pray that you would empower us to do them. I pray that I and these guys wouldn't just read these passages and be like, yes, that's right, we should love each other. Yes, we should show hospitality to each other. Yes, we should be content with money, but I pray that we'd actually do it. I pray that we'd do it through the strength that you provide, through the Spirit. I pray that we'd look to the examples that we have of our leaders currently, those leaders and heroes of the faith that you've listed, and I pray we'd look to you as the same yesterday, today, and forever. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.